This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be here tonight. My name is Louise Bedsworth, and I'm the Executive Director of the California Strategic Growth Council. We're a state entity, um, so part of the state government. We sit actually within the Governor's Office of Planning and Research, and we're overseen by a council of 10 members, uh, seven cabinet officials uh, from this current administration and three public members. And we were established just over 10 years ago to support sustainable community development throughout California. And so as an organization, our goal is to bring together the perspectives of all of our member agencies, which includes health and human services, environmental protection, transportation, housing, uh, natural resources, food and agriculture, and planning and research um, uh, to all design integrated solutions to help support sustainable communities. And the, the real goal around establishing the Strategic Growth Council was a recognition that when you look at a community scale, all of our agencies um, are touching on the everyday lives in our communities, um, including health and transportation um, and, and environmental protection. So our vision as an organization is healthy, thriving, and resilient communities for all. And we do this through a collaborative work with all of our member agencies, communities, and stakeholders, uh, and really focusing on putting equity at the center of all that we do, focusing on economic prosperity, quality of life, and really lifting up some of the most impacted communities in California. Now, I will admit our organization was not established with an eye towards specifically thinking about adaptation and resilience as much as where we came in was how do we help communities design strategies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to reduce pollution, uh, and, and you know, to thrive. And then I think increasingly, just even over the last 10 years, uh, the changes we're experiencing now, whether changes in average conditions, extreme events, we're recognizing that all that we're doing in that effort, even if our initial focus was on reducing emissions and pollution, is really about building more resilient communities. And so I just thought it was worth talking. Uh, you know, we took some time. This is a, three years ago, actually, work that we did through the Office of Planning and Research um, to start talking about what does it take to, what does a resilient California look like? And then what are the steps we need to take to get there? And I won't go as much into the steps, uh, which got very specific around sort of what climate impacts to think about as much as what is it that we're working towards. And the pieces I like to emphasize here is it's very much a it's a systematic approach. It's really thinking in a systems way around not just our built infrastructure, but our people and our communities and our natural systems and how all of these pieces work together. And they need to be able to withstand changing average conditions as well as shocks and extreme events. Um, and, and then also not just, it's not a static state. It really is about continued learning and adjustment and being a dynamic system um, that is working together. And so really that is what we're working towards in our efforts around building resilience. So I was going to start though really with a focus on what we do at the Strategic Growth Council. And our one of our main areas of work is in doing place-based investment. And so place-based investment is really looking at a specific location and making investments that are very responsive to 
the needs that are specific to that place and the context of that place. So that's the physical, social, and economic context in which we're making an investment. And so when we're thinking about making these place-based uh, investments, we're thinking about physical risk, but really I think, you know, and that is, that is a key piece of all of our programs is really thinking about what are the changing conditions like, but our focus is really on these integrated solutions and how do we build um, approaches that support infrastructure, but then also social and natural systems. And really important for the work that we do is centering equity in all of our programs, our outcomes, and then even uh, if I have time at the end, I'll touch on, on our own operations as an organization. So I was gonna walk through a few various examples from around California um, that where we've, we've taken this approach. And then at the end, I'll just bring it all back together in sort of what I see as our, our primary principles driving our work. So I'm going to start with two examples that we've of investments we've made through some things called the Transformative Climate Communities Program. And this is a program that was designed to make investments in communities around California that have been most impacted through pollution burden, but also under investment um, over, over time. And so these are communities that are severely overburdened, but have, have tremendous assets in and of themselves. Um, and so the investments here are really intended to lift those communities up, build the capacity of the people and the place to continue to grow and evolve. Um, and so it really is intended to be a catalytic investment um, in, a, in a specific location. We focus these investments in an area that's less than five square miles, um, and we really uh, take a community-driven approach. And so one of these uh, that I wanted to start with is in Ontario, California, um, down in Southern California in San Bernardino County. And this is a community, uh, actually, and if you look in this, uh, in the Senate district in which this community um, sits, you just, it's a, a very impacted community that has seen significant uh, pollution over the years, concentrated poverty. Um, and so in Ontario, uh, they began a process actually through some investments, I believe from the Kaiser Foundation to start bringing uh, together residents and other partners to build a vision for what their community um, could look like. And it's just called Ontario Together. Uh, we made a, an investment of approximately $33.5 million here. Um, and what this is supporting is an, an integrated vision that brings together 15 different partners and a whole host of investments and projects. So we're investing in affordable housing and transportation, uh, in doing sustainable food systems and workforce development, also doing uh, investments in uh, active transportation, so bike lanes, sidewalks and other pedestrian improvements to just improve the overall livability of this um, focused area. Uh, in, in particular, we invest in, in, some, in workforce efforts that are centered at a community hub where they're providing job counseling as well as other training opportunities. And so this project also brought in um, additional uh, investment of $16.5 million so far, where we're seeing continuing to go into this concentrated um, project area. Another example, and I'll talk through this next one, and then I'll talk about some of the, the common principles that cut across these two projects. 
Another example of an investment that we've made is in um, Watts down in Los Angeles. And this is a project called Watts Rising. Again, a project we invested in through our Transformative Climate Communities Program. And Watts has one of the highest concentrations of public housing um, in the nation. And this is actually a redevelopment project at Jordan Downs, one of the largest public housing projects. So it is the Housing Authority of the City of Los Angeles is the primary lead on this project, but it is done in partnership uh, with residents, community-based organizations, including cultural institutions. And so in, in this investment, we are uh, investing in a redevelopment of a portion of the housing also doing uh, training for residents around solar installation, energy efficiency improvements, and so uh, trying to build a workforce there. In addition, in the housing construction, uh, they are doing, uh, the County of Los Angeles has an incredible local hire program, so doing tremendous um, local hire and training residents in the construction trades with pathways to high quality jobs. Uh, we also are doing uh, tree planting throughout the project area. Again, this is an area of less than five, five square miles. Uh, we're doing energy retrofits on homes in the neighboring community. So these are generally low-income homeowners uh, near, this, uh, near Jordan Downs. And so these investments all work together to realize a vision that came out of an extensive community engagement process in both of these locations. Some common elements in our transformative climate communities program and what I think make it so much more than just an infrastructure investment and really start taking those steps towards this really building a more resilient community is that we couple these investments in infrastructure or tree planting with what we call uh, transformative elements. And so in each um, investment area, there is a collaborative stakeholder structure. So this is actually a formalized process by which all of the project partners come together and outline roles and responsibilities and engagement that is formalized through a memorandum of understanding. So we're building and supporting a ground up partnership that is located in place. And that structure is critically important for implementing these projects, but for also um, providing community oversight and buy-in to the work that's happening on the ground. And so we do that, that is a required element of investment in all of our areas. We also uh, require that each place have a community engagement plan. So how are you bringing your community in? How are you keeping them involved throughout the whole process? Um, and that is required element when we make an award. We also require every area to, to do a, a, sorry, a climate adaptation and resilience plan. So how are they looking at climate risk and thinking and building in response to that? It also, in many of these individual investments, these infrastructure investments, specific requirements for thinking, you know, addressing climate risk in that investment. Uh, we also require um, uh, an anti-displacement plan in all of these places. So again, how do we ensure that the places that we're investing in, we're investing in those people in those places and so that they are there to benefit from these investments. And so one thing we know uh, when we do this kind of work is often when you make large scale community improvements, be it in housing or transportation or greening, uh, you can start to see low income businesses and residents pushed out. 
And so we are trying to take proactive steps to make sure that policies and programs are in place to help people and businesses stay in place and benefit from these investments. So this is really how we try to take an infrastructure investment program and integrate it in such a way that we're helping a community not just get a new get new housing, but really to build up that that resilient um, system in place. Um, another example I'll just provide. These are very large investments. So these are, um, as I, I said, both of these are thirty-three and a half million dollar investments. Some of our largest investments to date. Uh, but we also can see similar results coming out through smaller investments. This is an example of a planning grant that we supported in the Franklin neighborhood in Sacramento, where we invested $170,000 um, into a community development corporation uh, that brought together 55 different organizations to build a playbook um, for this neighborhood, which is a, a very overburdened neighborhood, historic um, disinvestment, and engage the community in building what they've called their Franklin Neighborhood Playbook. And this outlines what is the vision for this community? What are the priorities that they wanna see happen? A bunch of the work was undertaken by high school students who surveyed community members in multiple different languages to build out what, what is it that that community wants to see. And then now they have a product and a plan that they've already been able to leverage to bring additional investment into that community. And so, and they actually did bring in a specific climate um, adaptation and resilience lens, lens in this work, and it becomes something that is owned um, and really led by the community. And again, really an important component of how we build that resilience. Um, finally, this is a very specific example. Uh, another investment program that we undertake uh, is in affordable housing and sustainable communities. And this is one thing I just is, um, I think is important to note, which is um, when you take a place-based approach to investment, your solution is going to need to not just fit the needs of that community, but fit the context of that community and the look and the style and things like that. And so what we invest in and build uh, in downtown San Francisco is not what we would want to invest and build in the city of San Bernardino, which they are very different contexts and needs. And so this is actually just um, from a, a pictorial standpoint, is a very high density development that we've invested in, but that fits in the place where it is. It came out of a community pro a community process um, that was led through a, a really a capacity building initiative where they identified what do they wanna see? How do they wanna see this affordable housing development come about in their neighborhood and what are the needs there? So a focus here is on connectivity between housing and school. Um, and so this is again, just an example of that it's not a one size fits all, but it's really designing solutions that fit into a place. So what are some of the principles that we employ and that I think are really key to thinking about how we build uh, more resilient communities? And these are communities that are gonna be able to hopefully withstand and thrive under changing climate conditions, but we also see these as principles that are gonna help us you know, come back from the impacts of an, of something like the COVID pandemic, where, you know, we've already seen really large economic hits. And, you know, how do we help places have the uh, capacity to help build back and build back stronger and better? 
Um, and so first is building community capacity and power. This is not, we are a state, ent a state entity. We are not a top-down state entity. We are very much about coupling our state goals with a local vision. And so really trying to marry that community vision and capacity with our goals and vision. Engaging community and identifying priorities and solutions, advancing integrated solutions and centering equity and opportunity. And I'll just give a few quick examples of each of those and, and then wrap up. Uh, first on technical assistance and capacity building. And I can't stress how incredibly cost-effective and efficient a strategy this is, which is working with community-based organizations, housing developers, local governments, and others to help them have the tools and resources and knowledge and just partnerships that they need to realize their vision. This is a photo um, through a program we did in partnership with the Institute for Local Government, uh, the city of East Palo Alto, and, um, and, and a, they brought together a number of partners to start pulling together priorities, thinking about where to go for resources and money to realize their vision and their priorities. And we did this with 10 different communities around the state and have seen incredible returns on that investment in terms of what those communities have been able to accomplish. Another is uh, community engagement. I mentioned this is a central piece to our transformative com climate communities program. Uh, and I love this example, which comes from our, actually our, our biggest investment uh, to date is a $66.5 million grant to the city of Fresno. And this is um, in Yosemite Village or Yeovil, which is a public housing project in Fresno, where there was a large vacant lot um, that the Fresno Housing Authority had nearby. And they put in a community garden um, that also has some areas to um, for farmers to learn permaculture techniques. So that's really about trying to train and bring on new farmers. Uh, but it also is a community garden and a community convening space. And so this is actually a hand-drawn um, poster that came out of a community engagement workshop showing all of the elements of what of the project. And so one piece of this is that the large blue ring around it is a walkway that is a specified distance. So they know that they can go out and walk and get exercise and know how far they're going. And then it's also coupled with um, meeting spaces and ways to convene with neighbors and build more of that social cohesion and connection. And that all came out of a community engagement process. Uh, this is just an example again in Fresno of how they've maintained this engagement in all elements of this project and in this investment area. Another is I mentioned really thinking about integrated solutions. This is an example from the Ontario grant that I mentioned. And one on the left-hand side is a um, is actually a community garden, again, coupled with a production urban agriculture facility in Ontario. To the On the right is the affordable housing development that is being um, supported also through that grant. Those two I show side by side because a key piece of this project and this investment was thinking about food waste and food waste management and building solutions there. And so part of um, on the urban agriculture facility, they're doing um, uh, more industrial composting, which then the city is using around its affordable housing development. So really trying to integrate these pieces across this in this project area and thinking about how to design solutions that work within that space. 
Finally, I want to, you know, I think uh, all of these pieces that we're talking about are really about building equity, building access and opportunity for places. Um, and I just can't stress enough, I think, how important it is that we have taken a very proactive step to build in um, uh, requirements around displacement avoidance. And I mentioned this already, which is how do we ensure we're protecting and providing this opportunity to the residents and businesses that are real are, are generating this vision. Um, and that when you build that and you build that capacity and that partnership and cohesion in a place, you can help it thrive and reside there. Um, and that is really a central piece that we're continuing to work on and try to develop in all of our programs. So those are some of our key principles. I also just wanted to touch, I think, you know, this is how we're trying to push out the work that we're doing. Um, and then also very much in trying to, um, you know, to build that in, build that resilience in place and in communities, but then also to reflect those principles in the work that we do at the Strategic Growth Council. Uh, we have been taking, uh, working across the state enterprise on racial equity efforts. We've adopted a racial equity action plan and really trying to model how we not just build these principles of equity out into our programs, but also in our own operations and policy. And so this is also an active area of work. Again, really trying to reflect the principles that we see for building sustainable, resilient communities on the ground and how we as an organization are operating at the state level. Um, and so with that, I will conclude there and look forward to the discussions and questions um, that and further in the evening. Welcome everyone, it's our pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Navina Baba, I'm the Deputy Director here at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. I'm joined um, and will be uh, co-presenting with Matt Wolf, who is our Manager of Climate and Health Programs, and you'll hear from him later in the program. Our topic today is climate change in public health, how a local health department prepares for and responds to climate hazards. So I want to provide an overview on what we'll be reviewing today. Um, we'll do a short introduction to talk about what climate uh, change is happening in San Francisco um, and how the Department of Public Health is responding to it. We'll focus on three main areas of climate change, extreme heat, air quality, and power disruption. And then we'll go into how climate change is actually changing the way we think about public health and how we respond and where do we go from here. So first I wanna talk a little bit about um, how the city itself is responding to climate change. Um, we are multiple city departments that um, unify to try to actually combat um, climate change. And that includes um, our city administrator's office where our office of resiliency lives um, and really leads um, a lot of our climate change work as well as work on other natural disasters. Um, our port, which looks at seawater rise and sea, sea level change um, to try to mitigate and plan for that. Um, our Public Utilities Commission, which looks at water um, and ensuring as the climate changes that our water remains safe and drinkable. Our San Francisco Planning Agency, um, which deals with building and building permits. 
um, and then a host of other departments everywhere from our San Francisco MTA, um, looking at transportation, our SF environment, um, which has been central to leading the charge in climate change, public works, um, parks and rec. Um, so the, there's a, a host of city departments that are really working on this topic for um, planning as well as um, mitigating um, actions of, um, around climate change. And then I'm gonna focus a little bit on what the Department of Public Health does. Um, so we work closely with another department called the San Francisco Department of Emergency Management to respond to uh, climate change. Um, as you can imagine, any type of emergency has public health consequences. Climate change specifically has multiple public health consequences. Every um, Department of Public Health is structured a bit differently, and I wanted to give you a little bit of information of how our department is structured because it actually helps us in our response to climate change. Um, our health department has a public health division, which does the normal day-to-day um, -day routine functions of any public health department, and that includes um, communicable disease, emergency preparedness, um, our Office of um, Education, um, and um, multiple other uh, normal public health functions. Um, and then we also have a, a huge clinical system, which is a little bit unusual for health departments. Um, under the health department, we have San Francisco General, we have Laguna Hos Honda Hospital, and we have multiple clinics as well as um, behavioral health. And so this really helps us integrate our public health um, response with our healthcare system response. Um, it's been a major strength in um, San Francisco's ability to respond to climate change. So the topics that we're going to focus on today um, include extreme heat, air quality, and power outages. Um, I do want to say that flooding and extreme storms is another thing that we are looking at in San Francisco and have developed materials on. Um, we are working with our partners around this as well, um, but most of our focus has actually been on extreme heat, air quality, and power outages, um, and a, a lot of it actually has been extreme heat and air quality because those are the things that we've experienced the most, and anybody who's lived in San Francisco over the last three years has experienced all of these things, whether it's been really um, high temperature days or um, multiple wildfires that cause poor air quality within San Francisco and the surrounding Bay Area. So we'll review some of that. So next I wanna talk a little bit about um, extreme heat in San Francisco. And really, um, I think myself as well as the, the department and most of San Francisco was um, introduced to this notion of extreme heat by the Labor Day uh, heat wave that occurred in 2017. For those of you that remember, um, temperatures got to um, extremely high levels, um, including in San Francisco, we hit a temperature of 106 recorded. Um, in parts of the city, it went up to 108 and eight. Um, and then the following day, we were still in the hundreds. Um, and that had a significant impact on San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco is generally, it's not been built to have temperatures of 100 degrees or to withstand temperatures of, um, you know, triple digits. Very few people have air conditioning. Um, a lot of people um, don't have access to um, cooler sites. Um, and we have a lot of um, elderly people living within our community that get impacted by these um, heat stress, street heat stresses that occur. So um, on that day, we saw a, a lot of impacts from the heat, um, from our community impacts to even healthcare system impacts, which I'll talk a little bit more about. This is a, a graph that shows our emergency, um, our EMS calls. Um, and 
you can see that um, in general, the EMS calls um, range around between, you know, anywhere between 300 and 350. Um, Labor Day of 2017, we went up to 600. It caused a huge surge in ambulance calls and 911 calls because of the heat. Uh, we also saw a, a, a large increase in um, emergency department visits. Um, and this is something that occurs typically with heat. Um, you do see an uh, increase in both 911 calls as well as um, ED visits, um, mainly from heat stress. Um, so that was on the EMS 911 system side. Um, our healthcare system also had impacts, um, including infrastructure issues. Um, like I said, most buildings in San Francisco are not made for 106-degree heat. Um, and when um, the temperatures get that high, um, infrastructure can potentially start to fail. Um, so we worked very closely with our hospital systems, and most of them were able to recover pretty quickly. Um, but it was just a warning um, to us of, of how vulnerable San Francisco is to heat. And so um, extreme heat is definitely um, one of the factors, um, one of the results of climate change. As you can see, um, this information is from uh, CalADAPT, which is a state climate resource. And um, basically what it shows is that the number of extreme heat days is going to steadily rise um, as time goes by. So in San Francisco, um, an extreme heat event is defined as when the temperature exceeds 85 degrees. Um, now, that might not seem like a lot, um, 85 degrees, but in fact, we generally have rarely hit that um, maybe, you know, one to two times a year. Um, the number of times that that's going to happen in the future is going to increase. Um, additionally, it's going to be much higher than 85 degrees, uh, most likely. So, um, like I said, traditionally, we've hit this maybe three to four times a year, and um, that will probably go to anywhere from, you know, 15 um, above, 15 times uh, or 15 days a year to above by the end of the century. The other thing with climate change is as we do have hotter days, um, again, we have to think about um, what San Francisco was built for. Um, and so, you know, we do have a lot of green spaces, but one of the ways that um, if you live in San Francisco, you know that we see we get a lot of fog cover, which tends to cool the area. Um, but as climate change um, progresses, that the ability of our um, fog cover is likely to get less with time. Um, so that means that when you have hot days, um, the nights are less likely to get cool. Um, and so it will stay hot both day and night. And that also really impacts health. Um, and then as we talked about uh, this just represents the number of extreme heat days. So um, in the yellow, it's when it's over 85 degrees. In um, the orange, it's when it was over 90. And then in the red, it was over 95. Um, and, and there have been periods where all of this has gone up and down, but we are seeing many more days over 90, over 95 degrees um, that are occurring within the city. Um, and that's happened over the last few years. Um, when temperatures hit above 90, um, we tend to have a lot of um, activities that we have to ensure happen so that uh, the health impacts of um, extreme heat get mitigated. And the other thing that we're seeing is that we're having to activate in, um, those activities more and more frequently within San Francisco. So I want to talk a little bit about the, um, the health impacts of extreme heat. Um, as we stated, the emergency room visits for um, heat-related causes really increase with heat. And this is from a 2006 study um, that was done um, across the state once when there was a, a huge heat wave that occurred at that time. 
Um, and they specifically pointed out that coastal regions tend to be hit harder. Um, again, this is because um, the infrastructure is um, not really built for these high temperatures. Um, additionally, like I said, the, the very old as well as potentially the young um, are at the greatest risk of um, having extreme heat impacts. Um, and then people with chronic disease, such as um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, and kidney disease are at much higher risk for having um, heat impacts. So um, why is San Francisco so vulnerable to um, heat? Um, and as you can see here, one of the reasons is that um, heat is, or um, San Francisco has a lot of urban heat islands. Um, and an uh, urban heat island is basically um, where there's a concentration of asphalt, black roofs, or other impervious services. So heat tends to collect. Um, and you can see that there's a lot of places within San Francisco that we have urban heat islands. Um, specifically, um, a lot of the eastern part of the city um, has a lot of urban heat islands, which just may, means that when we have extreme heat days, heat tends to concentrate even more in those areas. And I've mentioned this a few times, um, the infrastructure in San Francisco has not really um, been made for extreme heat temperatures. So there's very few people that actually have um, air conditioning. The, the, in fact, San Francisco has one of the lowest air conditioning ownerships across the country. Um, and then uh, obviously um, air conditioning um, is not equitably distributed across the city. So newer high rises, um, probably more expensive housing has air conditioning, um, whereas um, areas that have lower socioeconomic status don't have um, the ability to get into air conditioning or have their units air conditioned. Additionally, um, as I was saying, with um, some of the changes with climate change, you will also see a lot more heat trapped indoors in buildings because of the urban heat islands um, and because there's poor airflow that goes through those. So um, even though uh, the day is hot, we also will not get nighttime cooling in these areas. And that leads to um, severe extreme heat that a person might experience within their home for multiple days. And again, um, people that have chronic disease, the elderly and the young um, are particularly vulnerable to the ongoing heat. So um, one of the things that we know in San Francisco is that health impacts are not equitably distributed um, and that's just in general, but um, specifically also for heat, that's true as well. Um, and this just shows that, you know, what we are seeing is that in the southeast part of the city, uh, specifically where potentially some of our more vulnerable communities live, they are also much more um, vulnerable to heat. When we think about health impacts or heat impacts, um, they kind of go into four categories or three categories. Um, exposure, so the degree to which you're exposed to heat, and again, um, has to do with urban heat islands, um, temperature, if there's um, greenery in your uh, area. So are there a lot of parks? Are there a lot of trees? Um, if you own air conditioning, um, sensitivity. So the degree to which any individual person is sensitive to um, heat. Um, and that could be age-related. It could be disease-related. Um, if you have pre-existing conditions that um, predispose you to heat. Um, sensitivity, and then adaptive capacity. 
So um, having the political, social, and economic resources to prepare and respond to heat events, um, and that is obviously inequitably uh, distributed based on socioeconomic status, as well as um, other cultural and um, social issues. And given all that we know about heat, um, what we have done in the department is really adapted our heat response to have specific triggers where we um, provide specific activities based on the temperature. So if we get to 80 and 85 degrees um, over three days, two to three days, um, we have specific actions. And then as temperature increases, we have specific actions. Um, and this has all been um, decided through you know, policy, literature review, as well as actual experience. Um, and a lot of this has to do with messaging and education, but as the days get hotter, ensuring that people have access to water, to have access to cooling centers, um, to ensure that there are wellness checks, um, especially with people that live alone or, um, and are elderly and might be isolated. We want to make sure that there's um, morbidity and mortality is really um, decreased during these events. And I think now I will turn it over to Matt to continue with the rest of the talk. So our second hazard that we're going to talk about is poor air quality. And in this section, I'm going to reference the air quality index a bunch of times. So I'm just going to start by talking about the air quality index. Um, the air quality index measures, and we call it the AQI, measures air quality for the five pollutants regulated by the Clean Air Act. And that's ground level ozone, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, and particulate matter. Um, and so the AQI, uh, the AQI provides each pollutant a score of zero through 500, and any score over 100 is unhealthy for certain groups. A score over 150 is unhealthy. A score over 200 is very unhealthy, and a score over 300 is hazardous. And it's tiered by colors. And I'm sure a lot of you are, you know, uh, experienced at looking at these AQI maps. Um, generally, San Francisco has pretty good air quality. We have we don't have a ton of point source pollution, and we have winds and fogs that tend to clear air pollution out of the air. Um, but there's a lot of ways that climate change can increase poor air quality. Uh, for example, extreme heat accelerates the creation of ground level ozone or smog. It reduces vertical mixing, and so it can increase atmospheric stagnation. And also it reduces fog, um, as Navina mentioned, as coastal and ocean temperatures increase and become more similar to inland temperatures. But the most significant way that climate change increases um, poor air quality is through wildfire smoke. And um, as you know, wildfires have become more frequent and more extreme uh, due to drought and different in warmer temperatures, but also invasive species and land use and land management practices. So this is a map of San Francisco's AQI during the Butte County campfire event, um, November, 2018. So in 2018, a deadly wildfire in Butte County coincided with the Diablo winds, which is a wind pattern that blows strong winds from east to west in October or November in California. And these Diablo winds funneled wildfire smoke south and west through the delta into the San Francisco Bay Area. And because there was a high pressure system off the coast, this wildfire smoke was trapped over the San Francisco Bay Area for 12 or 13 straight days. San Francisco's AQI was 150 for 12 days and peaked at 228, which was unhealthy. 
Um, and we had a similar experience this year um, where we had wildfire smoke events. In, we had wildfires in adjacent counties like San Mateo, Santa Cruz, Napa, Sonoma, Alameda counties uh, due to the lightning uh, storm. And we had other, ba- other California counties had significant wildfires that affected our AQI and that rendered our AQI unhealthy for a prolonged period of time. Uh, like extreme heat, the populations most vulnerable to the health impacts of wildfire smoke are the same are the ones especially exposed to the hazards. So those are who are have insecure housing or in, live in substandard housing. Uh, people that are especially sensitive to the hazards. So pregnant women, children, older adults, people with pre-existing health conditions like respiratory illness or cardiovascular illness, or those who may not have the resources to prepare for and respond to the wildfire smoke events, which can be impacted by race, income, immigration status, education, among other things. Um, this chart uh, shows the EMS hospital admissions and emergency department visit bo- volumes for San Francisco during the Butte County wildfire smoke event. So the column to the left shows the AQI um, in 2018, uh, the column to the and then you can see that in 2018, emergency department visits were slightly higher than 2017, but. EMS calls actually were about the exact same, uh, which is against all odds. And I'm not showing this to emphasize the threat of um, I'm showing this graph more to emphasize the threat of extreme heat. In the graph that Navina showed, we saw huge spikes in uh, emergency department visits and EMS calls for extreme heat. And we're not seeing those spikes for wildfire smoke. And that's not to say that wildfire smoke doesn't present a significant health impact. It's just that it's not as easily measurable based on our its impact on our health system. What is the impact of wildfire smoke events? Well, uh, the first is increased mortality. There was a new Stanford study that I think got released recently that modeled ex- excess deaths associated with exposure to wildfire smoke that attributed, I think, like 3,000 excess deaths with the most recent wildfire smoke events. But then there's also more significant short-term impacts, like increasing cardiovascular illnesses or exacerbation of cases of asthma or COPD. But then there, and there's an impact on neonatal and prenatal development and significant mental health impacts. There's also less serious health impacts that may not be captured by this data. And that includes the stuff that I know I felt during these wildfire smoke events, which was um, dry skin, itchy eyes, cough, headache, tiredness. There's also long-term health impacts from wildfire smoke, from routine exposure. And lastly, service disruptions, whether that service is schools that are canceled or work that is canceled, that it can have significant and cascading impacts on both um, your own ability to go to work and your health. So what do we do for these wildfire smoke events? So similar to extreme heat, we'd have a response grid. And um, when developing this response grid, what public health had to think about was how long do we want air quality to sit in a certain temperature threshold, uh, to sit in a certain AQI threshold? So for example, you might have AQI that fluctuates over the course of a day. So it might be 100 and then dip into 200 for an hour and then back into 100 again. And so as an emergency to, as an emergency preparedness and response program, do we activate into do we continuously adjust what our response grid looks like? And so what we decided to do is we decided to say we're going to activate at certain levels 
if we're over 24 hours in that level or in a worsening wildfire situation. And what do we do? We send, we do outreach and engagement where we send alerts through community-based organizations, kind of like a really elaborate phone tree. It's more complicated than that, but we send alerts to community-based organizations who then send it out to their people so we can get a lot of information out about how to stay safe during these events. We do data analysis and tracking to, to track, uh, how our hospitals are doing, how our ambulances are doing, what's the strain on our network. We support healthcare infrastructure like extreme heat events. A lot of our hospitals themselves get impacted in where there's wildfire smoke might get into a waiting room. So we monitor that and support that infrastructure. When there's an especially severe event, we might open a weather relief center where we have a library or somewhere with ventilation that is open for people to go. And then there's other policy responses like canceling events. Um, I'm going to talk very quickly about power disruption, which is our last um, hazard. And the reason I'm going to go over it briefly is because San Francisco, although we've been planning for power disruption, we actually haven't had our power shut off yet. Um, And I wanted to just take a second to acknowledge the other counties around us that have had power disruption, which is, you know, and that although San Francisco has done a lot of preparation for that, oftentimes this isn't our story to tell. So I just, there's a lot of real lived experience with adjacent counties on how to deal with this. But anyway, um, as you know, PG&E equipment has been found legally responsible for many of the most recent fire wildfires. For example, investigators believe that the 2018 campfire started with a failure um, of a hook holding up a high voltage line. And because many of these wildfires started in this way, PG&E has started preemptively de-energizing this equipment during particularly dangerous wildfire conditions, which include low humidity, high temperatures, lots of wind. And so these events in, um, could impact health. And the health impacts of power disruption can range from carbon monoxide poisoning, from misuse of backup power generation generators to reduced mobility when elevators don't work, to loss of heating and cooling, to mental health impacts, to the loss of refrigeration that could cause foods or medicines to spoil. But the most severe impact is for those who depend on electronic medical equipment, um, such as cardiac assist devices, oxygen concentrators, home dialysis machines, wheelchairs. And those people have more significant health impacts. So what is DPH going to do. We're developing messaging to prepare for people for um, power disruption. We're preparing for, we're doing wellness checks. So we have lists of people who depend on DMEs, durable medical equipment, electronic medical equipment that are provided to us by Medicare that we can then try to do wellness checks to those people in advance of a public safety power shutoff. And then also supporting health services um, as our hospitals or other health clinics get overwhelmed. So we're going to search into that next section, which is how does these climate impacts change the way public health operates? And so I wanted to focus on the increased demands on public health, um, which the first one is more activation days. So in the chart that Navina showed where you saw an increase in the number of days over 90 degrees, 95 degrees recently, that's more days that public health has to activate at our most most extreme response thresholds. And we have more wildfire smoke events, and we're often responding 
to all of our other challenges as well. So we're increased capacity constraints. Um, the second impact is combined hazards. So oftentimes these hazards are interrelated. So you know, in September, you might have a wildfire smoke event at the same time as an extreme heat event. I think that happened this year. And, you know, basically a lot of times the responses to those events are contradictory. So in extreme heat, what we tell people is basically um, at night when the temperatures dip, open your windows, try to cool out your room. Um, and then during the day, draw your blinds, close everything up to keep the cool air in. During wildfire smoke events, it's keep things closed all the time, which might make things hotter if you're keeping hot air in. So oftentimes there's contradictory um, uh, responses, and it's hard when these happen at the same time. And the last thing is COVID-19, which we dealt with this year. Um, and COVID-19 um, exacerbated all of these impacts because it made them worse. Um, there was less access to cool spaces. Normally, most of our air-conditioned spaces in San Francisco include malls and movie theaters and pools, all of which were closed this year. Um, additionally, a lot of people depend on friends and family for access to air conditioning. I might not have air conditioning myself, but I have an uncle who, when you go, when it gets really hot, I'd go to his house. That is not something that um, is possible this year. Um, additionally, um, when we send out messaging to community-based organizations to prepare for extreme heat, and that's how we get our messaging out, we, um, we found that a lot of these CBOs are operating at or beyond capacity. There's so much demand on them, and that social networks have been disrupted just by uh, social isolation caused by COVID-19 response. So a lot of COVID-19 has actually made response to these events more difficult. So where do we go from here? Um, we anticipate climate change related hazards to increase in both frequency and intensity. We're, we're expecting hot heat waves to get hotter, to get more often. And so how do we make sure that we are prepared for this? Um, the number one thing is to go back to the first slide is interdepartmental collaboration. It's important that we are increasingly working at the city level to make sure that um, climate change, climate action is done on a citywide space, that we're all working in lockstep. And from a health department's perspective, it's especially important because I think we bring like a human health centered approach, but we depend on other uh, organizations and other city departments that are focused on infrastructure to kind of work with them. Um, the second thing is data analysis, tracking, and evaluation. We need to get more sophisticated on the way we're tracking health impacts from these events. Um, there's a lot of research happening right now on the health impacts of wildfire smoke, which is going to be really helpful as we try to isolate and identify interventions. Um, we're trying to create a surveillance system around extreme heat so we have a better idea in real time what the health impacts of that, the extreme heat events are. Um, outreach and engagement, we need to do a, um, we're looking to do a better job on engaging community-based organizations and citizens in San Francisco to prepare for these events. Um, I think one of the things, especially around extreme heat, that's a challenge is unlike many other hazards, like an earthquake. Everybody knows an earthquake is a disaster. With an extreme heat event, which you saw the health impact, the spike, a lot of people don't view it with the same severity. Everybody can deal with an extreme heat event until you can't. And I think it's up to us to better build that case. 
Um, and to also focus on social uh, coordination and social cohesion one in informal networks. One of the biggest indicators of your resilience to these events is how connected you are to your neighbors. We need to support citywide uh, initiatives to develop resilient buildings and infrastructure, make sure that we have our buildings are weatherized uh, for extreme temperatures. Even if it's not air conditioning, there's ways that you can make the building better during extreme heat. Increase our green space. Um, reduce those urban heat islands. And the last is um, climate action. So all of this is only works if it's in lockstep with um, uh, aggressive and robust plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which I know our Department of Environment is spearheading in San Francisco, which we are happy partners with. So with all of these things combined, I think what we can start to do is actually build a really resilient infrastructure where we can start to like not only go and like prepare for climate change related hazards, but also develop the tools necessary to like trickle into other um, health impacts too. So um, that concludes our presentation and thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having a very incredible view of um, both the um, local efforts on um, response and preparedness and also for the state's um, efforts to support local communities. Um, I think you've, you've all three given an idea of how important it is that, that what I think Louise used as placed-based um, local kinds of efforts are. I'm actually going to just start with um, you, Louise, because I think the three questions that are already in the Q&A kind of link together. Um, they link together in um, question about where the funding resources are coming from for the programs that you're developing. The, they, they bring in how do you increase the scale from these small communities and to the, put in the chat box, the 14 million homes in California? And then um, tying in with that, um, one of our questioners asks, are there um, any particular, this is not so much around the local community efforts, but are there um particular incentives um, that are similar to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's energy efficiency mortgages that could be available for homeowners and buyers or sellers to modernize their homes and bring those up to greater energy standards and efficiencies um, and incentivize renewable energy. And I think that fits in both with how you left the conversation, Matt, with um, resilience, uh, built with building structures and um, and expanding that to a broader reach. So those three ideas, Louise, do you want to comment on those and then either of the other speakers? Sure. Yes. And I apologize. I should have said at the at the outset where the, the majority of our funding for our programs comes from the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which are revenues from the state's cap and trade auctions. So part of our 
climate change uh, reduction strategy at the state scale is a series of regulatory programs and then a cap and trade program on uh, large stationary emission sources. Uh, and so those, um, those entities have can reduce their emissions below the cap and then they have allowances. Um, and if they don't need those allowances, they get sold on an auction and those revenues come in uh, to the state. And that part of this design of that program uh, requires that those investments be made in projects that reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a nexus between where the funding comes from and the use of that funding. Uh, there's also requirements on that funding that it benefit uh, low-income and disadvantaged communities throughout California. Um, and that uh, low income is looks at household income levels. And the state's definition around disadvantaged communities looks at uh, at a census tract level at places where we've seen high levels of pollution, um, concentrated poverty and other characteristics uh, really around historically underinvested and disinvested communities. Um, and so that is where we focus a lot of our investment. Um, so that is, that is our primary funding source for those, especially for those large projects that I talked about. The question on scale is a critical one, I think. Um, and uh, we, um, over the course of our programs, you know, have funded over 11,000 affordable housing units. But as noted, that is far below, as we all have heard and is in the news regularly, far below what we need. Um, a lot of what we really try to model is, um, is to try to put out a pilot or an example of a type of project um, in our transformative climate communities. We also put an, an emphasis on leverage, so bringing additional funding in. So trying to be um, to make an investment that will attract additional investment, um, and really trying to think about those abilities to partner and leverage state funds with other funds. So in the example in Watts, which I know is in the question. Um, We've made our investment there. We've also, the state has also invested in other ways um, through other programs. And then just recently HUD came in and, uh, and made a Choice Neighborhood Initiatives grant there as well. And so often it is trying to see how to pull together different resources and that can be in one space. And then in terms of the sort of how do we take the models that we've built and how we do our approach and try to integrate them into other programs. And so that's a lot of the interagency and policy coordination work we do across state entities is for all of us kind of to share best practices and think about how could you embed some of these principles in a transportation program or a different housing program um, or in another planning grant program. And so we do a lot of that work to try to share that approach so that we're trying to get at it through not just our funding program, but a number of other programs. I just wanted to um, jump in and add a comment, not a question. You mentioned that the um, funding for these programs comes from cap and trade, and I don't know if everyone in our um, in the audience tonight knows what the cap and trade is. It connects to where um, Matt left off that that um, that climate action has to be an essential part of the whole way that we move forward. And uh, cap and trade is actually a carbon pricing program or plan. There are many ways that one could design pricing carbon, that is the emissions that are generated from burning fossil fuels. And cap and trade happens to be the one 
that is um, embedded in California's system. And as Louisa said, those resources that are generated from putting a cost on the burning of fossil fuels is used in this particular way. But carbon pricing can be seen in many, many other ways. And I particularly have worked with an organization, Citizens Climate Lobby, that also puts that also is advocating a robust price on carbon and using the revenues actually to uh, to return to uh, to American um, uh, in people who live in in uh, the United States and that that would be also a way to have some equity equitable distribution since poor people use less. Uh, create less emissions and uh, need the resources also to endure the changes that are happening. So that's my little addition and plug. Now, uh, I think uh, cap and trade buys us some time, right? But it's not going to last forever. So while we're working through this as we are now, we'll need to be figuring out other ways of supporting these programs. And so I, I would like to extend that same question to Navina and Matt, and that is um, relating back to Connor's question in the Q&A, and are there other um, programs to provide incentives that will help buyers and sellers modernize their homes to become safer and more efficient? And if not, what policies need to be implemented to incentivize the use of more renewable energy and create safer homes. That's a huge topic. But other than what you're doing with the city of San Francisco, are there specific programs available to current homes? So the short answer is yes, there are some in, this, in the city of San Francisco. Um, they're run out of a lot of different departments. So I think there's some that are administered by our PUC there's some weatherization programs that are administered by our Department of Environment. There's some weatherization programs that I think are administered by our Department of Building and Inspections, but I'm not 100% sure of that. And then there's other programs, weatherization programs that are I know are run out of uh, from the state level that are associated um, with um, uh, like energy. And I think that one of the things that kind of relates to, there's two things. One that relates to your question is how do we create either a tool or some resource that combines a lot of these different um, incentive programs to make them easier to find. So I know that like a lot of them exist in different places. And if you're searching for it, how do we centralize that? And then I think the other one, at least in San Francisco, is most of the health impacts of extreme heat and wildfire smoke um, happen um, to people that don't own their own buildings. So it's either people that rent in multi-unit housing or people that um, that uh, rent in a single family home. And so a question that I think we're trying to figure out at the city level is how to incentivize landlords or building management to also make these upgrades. So you're not having a two-tiered system where the people who are owning their homes can make energy upgrades and weatherization upgrades and renters don't have access to that. So um, I know that isn't as 
specific as your question, but um, I think that there is that work happening in San Francisco. And in last follow-up to that question, um, Louise, um, a, a listener asks, will much of this work need to be done by industry and not state entities then? And how do we in uh, how do we incentive maybe incentivize for profit for profit corporations to care about these initiatives? Yeah, I mean, I think without a doubt, um, we need uh, every it's all hands on deck, right, to deal with all of these things. And I think um, you know that's that's critically important. Uh, one example that was actually included in the governor's climate budget, um, which came was introduced in January. It was ultimately uh, withdrawn uh, in light of COVID and impacts on the state budget was to actually start setting up more of a public-private partnership um, through something called the Climate Catalyst Fund, which is really to think about how do we um, use the state's um, some of our um, infrastructure and other ways to bring private sector partners on board to really push innovative climate and, and be able to support innovative climate solutions. And so I think that's still something that is very much uh, needed and that we will continue to look at. But I think, um, but yes, I mean, but the fact is we're seeing the private sector care. Um, BlackRock, largest investor um, in the world, you know, is already acknowledging that climate is an issue. It needs to be thought about, it needs to be integrated into how we're doing investment. Um, and you're seeing that come out increasingly, even from some federal entities in the last four years, that this is an issue. And so um, I think the private sector knows, um, and you're starting to see more organizations step up. And I think especially in light of um, this year in California, I mean, we all know the insurance industry, the reinsurance industry, they are looking at this incredibly closely because this is not um, this. I mean, climate is not a belief. Climate is we are living climate change and it's um, it's having an impact on people's day to day lives, but it's having an impact on the bottom line. And so I think the private sector um, is knows this is an issue and is stepping up. And then, um, you know, it's just how do we continue to ramp that up? But I, I think it's um, it's happening both through active government actions, but also just by what's happening in the world around us. I actually um, have some some specific questions um, for um, I, I am a psychiatrist. I work very um, closely um, as a psychiatrist um, on in the group I'm with Climate Psychiatry Alliance, which is looking at the mental health is issues and climate change. Um, and I have so I have some very specific questions that I actually could different ones for each of you, but I'm going to start with Navina. Navina, you specifically talked about heat, and um, it is a clearly a central and enormous problem for uh, for our, our heating planet. Um, the mentally ill, particularly the severely mentally ill and substance abusers are a very particularly um, vulnerable population when it comes to extreme heat. I'm wondering what kind of coordinated care and response and thinking has gone on within your department about focusing on that particular community 
um, during periods of extreme heat, um, just as a beginning. Uh, I, I mean, I could spend the whole hour with you guys on many of these questions, but let's start there. Sure, so I can talk a little bit about the spectrum that we have available. I will say our most um, targeted efforts are towards those that are homeless and are on the street and have substance use or mental health issues. Um, our teams go out regularly, um, both our street medicine team and our homeless outreach team through the city to go out and check on people, offer them water, um, and then um, tell them about cooling centers that are available. Um, so that's done. And then just to do general health checks to ensure um, that they're doing okay. So that happens anytime um, that we reach certain thresholds in the city. And it's one of the first actions the city does. There is additionally um, our behavioral health system, um, which serves about 30,000 clients throughout the city, um, also has targeted outreach that they can send out um, based on the temperatures um, that they send out to people um, and, and mainly actually to the providers themselves to tell them that there's a heat wave coming. And these are some of the impacts that they should um, be aware of. And these are some of the resources available to them. Um, I think one of the interesting things that we've seen um, in, in our heat waves, um, even though San Francisco you know, um, generally doesn't have heat waves. Um, but when we do, we follow the rest of, you know, um, the state in that there's very few people that actually use cooling centers. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's an interesting um, paradox where we really want people to go in, but I think people want to stay where they are, right? They, whether it's because they're on the street and they have their community there, or you're at home and you really don't want to leave your home um, to go to a strange place, even if it is cooler. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things that we've thought really through, um, which includes the mental health impacts, is how do we keep people at home if they're not going to leave, right? And so um, are there ways, as Matt was pointing out, for people who rent um, or, do, you know, don't have real control over the, where they're housed, um, that we can figure out ways to get them to a cooler climate or a cooler, cooler temperature in the place where they live. Um, and that's that's a tough one to crack. There's There has been, you know, across the country, there's been some interesting pilots. Um, New York, I believe, has um, a pilot where Medi-Cal, or um, their version of Medi-Cal, I guess, pays for um, air conditioning um, units. Um, and it was, I don't think it's a large number, but it's enough to, to help. So, you know, we've talked to the state about this possibly as well. Um, but there's just different ways to think about it. I think there's a lot of innovation that could happen in that space. That must be an extraordinarily difficult problem since so many of our mentally ill, as you say, either are homeless or live in single um, occupancy hotels um, and are extremely poor on top of the added burdens of the mental illness um, and, um, and a reluctance to actually then be in shared spaces. Um, very difficult problem. Mm -hmm. um, Catherine, I don't want to take all of you. Sure. <laughs> we do have a number of questions still, um, and we are coming near to the end of our time. So I want to ask one of the fast questions first, and then we'll go into another one, which I think involves everybody here. And so, Louise, this one will be for you. How does an energetic group of people with a great idea get in touch with the California Strategic Growth Council? And that comes from Renata Kiefer. 
Um, great. Well, I would highly recommend um, checking out our website, which is sgc.ca.gov. And there is a way to contact us through that and it'll go in. Um, we're, we're a small organization, so I'm not sending you into a black box. Uh, it will get, and you will actually have an email that will get received and distributed to the appropriate place um, in our small organization. So I would highly recommend that. We also um, hold public meetings regularly. Uh, and so we actually had one this afternoon. Um, so, uh, you know, in, encourage you to check those out and, and join those conversations as well. We had a really interesting one today all around um, housing and uh, and thinking about regional distribution of housing. So, um, so those are a couple of ways, but feel, please do reach out to us. Uh, we love to engage with folks. Great, thank you so much. And Corey Silver mentions that given the magnitude of COVID-driven economic impacts, the desire to get back to normal is understandable and comments that some industries may need to rebuild themselves from the ground up, perhaps with massive infusions of cash or loans from the government. And does that otherwise devastating assessment actually offer a sort of silver lining as it could be easier to enable fundamental changes in how we structure our society. One example, how we support healthier food options and greener transportation options, and how do we make that equitable? Um, so that's a, a lot, but I guess the essence of it is, does is there a silver lining to COVID that allows us to rethink some of the fundamental ways that we're building in preparation for climate change? And maybe Matt and Navina, we can start with you guys. Sure. Um, I think one of the things that I've been really um, impressed by is the way the San Francisco Department of Public Health has really gotten behind equity and outreach and engagement when it comes to COVID. So we have a our community engagement team, and Navina can speak more to this than me, um, talks to CBOs at a scale that we had not done before and more regularly. And during these most recent extreme heat events, wildfire smoke events, um, we were able to leverage that. And so I think a question is going forward is how do we take this type of response and make sure we still keep those connections that we've made to community-based organizations? And I think that's one silver lining is that we've done a lot of work within ourselves to respond to this event. And I think that that can be leveraged for other events and climate change is not dissimilar in that it's like, a slow moving collective action disaster that we all have to kind of depend on each other for. So um, that I think is my silver lining that I'm taking away from it. And I can just add a little bit to that. I think one of the things that we know is that um, um, the inequities that persist in society really have huge health impacts. And that's definitely something we're seeing with COVID. Um, and um, as Matt is saying, when um, you have pretty much, everyone across the world focused on one thing, you can really make a difference. Um, and it is incredible how much exists out there that is just not coordinated. Um, and COVID really has forced us to coordinate and centralize and um, 
synergize all of our efforts across, um, you know, whether it be the government, academic institutions, the community, we're all kind of focused on one goal at this point in time. Um, and it's made a huge difference that that kind of collective work together. So I think, again, that's another silver lining that um, Matt alluded to. And Louise, any silver linings in the work that you're doing? Um, well, I, I would concur with, I think, both what Matt and Navina said. And, and one thing I was, um, I thought was nice to hear across all of our discussions was the importance of social cohesion and social networks, especially as we think about um, long-term challenges. And so I definitely look at what's been happening through COVID and just even the way your, I always say your world became in a way very small but very connected to the people around you, whether it's in your home or just your immediate neighbors um, and things like that. So I think that is one. I think it's also worth thinking through, you know, obviously the economic devastation of COVID is, is real. And we know that, and it's being experienced in um, disparate ways around across communities and industries. And so I do think there is an opportunity if, as we look at, um, you know, hopefully some, some sort of a concerted effort to help us recover from that impact, an opportunity for us to embed all of the principles that we know we've learned through COVID, but we also know going in and how we do that type of investment, whether it's a real focus on um, high road jobs and really building pathways and training opportunities to um, high quality jobs for individuals. So that's something we've been working on a lot at the state level to think about how do we center housing um, and especially at the state in our recovery. And I think one incredible example has been Project Home Key, uh, where we took some of the recovery funds and, um, and invested in um, basically purchasing and rehabilitating um, motels and hotels for unhoused individuals. And I can't remember the statistic, but the amount that we've increased the number of rooms available for um, for folks who are experiencing homelessness over the course of this time is incredible. Um, and so how do we take some of those, you know, in an emergency, we were able to, to respond. Have we addressed the problem fully? No, of course not, but we've shown what we're able to do. Um, and so I think thinking about that and then how we take that forward as we think about recovery and we do recover, um, that's going to be really important. And I think without a doubt, um, the co coincidence of COVID and the disparate impacts with the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of the discussions around racial justice and injustice, I think coming together are going to be critically important in how we come out of this. Yes, thank you so much for that. And speaking of equity, there was one um, final question. Someone wanted to know if there is specific um, work going on with the Native American communities, Louise, and um, maybe the larger question there is, is there more information about the communities that you're working with on your website? Yes, there's there's definitely information on a lot of our projects. Um, we have a more recent initiative where we have been working with um, uh, some tribal governments on climate and energy planning. I'm not as familiar, unfortunately, in the specifically in the COVID space, but but there is a lot of work um, happening around partnerships with uh, tribes throughout California. Okay, well, you guys, this has just been tremendous. It's really wonderful to see the specific examples 
Um, sometimes when people say, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you, they really mean it. And <laughs> it's really a positive thing. So um, please know that we all appreciate the good work um, that you have been doing. Thank you all so much for participating tonight. We've learned a lot, and we look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you so much, everyone, and good night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.